Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Your Studio Design Academy podcast. Today we have the famed and only Alessandro Zomparelli, who may not need an introduction, but I'll give him one anyways. So he is the developer of the tissue add-on, which is the most amazing parametric design tool available to Blender for free. It even comes bundled with Blender uh, in addition to developing tissue. Alessandro Zumparelli recently came back from a teaching stint at SDU, SDU University, right? Where you were also using yes. tissue and Blender extensively in your design studios to build some amazing things. I used that for some research project that we were working on at uh, time. But and uh, in yeah. addition to that, we met actually with Alessandro almost four years ago when we were both presenting, but he had the main stage with a banging presentation of how to use tissue. And he teaches multiple workshops throughout the world on computational design. And you have a architecture background, right? And then at some point yes. you decided to become a computational designer. So besides architectural scale elements, or rather pavilion scale elements, you also deal with a lot of smaller scale design, correct? Yeah, yeah, correct, correct. So it's a pleasure to have you, Alessandro. Thank you, thank you, Dimitar. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for your introduction. Um, and uh, I mean, first of all, I also want to uh, do my, make my compliments because of your content. I think they are very nice videos and uh, especially the one uh, about tissue. <laughs> no, but it's, I think it's really great that you are actually making those content and uh, making it more uh, easy to understand uh, to apply to architectural scale. So I think that's that's a quite cool thing. And so thank you also for that. No, it's my pleasure. And I just try to expose more use cases for these kinds of tool sets because as somebody who's also used Grasshopper, Maya, and many other design and computational tools. I understand how long it takes to develop with those tools, something that's quite useful that with tissue, to use your favorite word, it, you can be super lazy with it, right? So you can create things <laughs> yeah, at a totally. fraction of the time. So. <laughs> yeah, totally. Actually, it's the product of laziness, basically <laughs> tissue. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an interesting laziness because you're lazy, but then you have to create 6,000 lines of code from your laziness, uh, yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But I didn't do all at once. I did just step by step. So, I mean, at the beginning, it was really like uh, that, that piece of code. And uh, and then I started at that thing and, uh, and people were complaining of things that weren't working. So I was fixing bugs and adding exceptions and then it started growing and... Uh, at some point, it became like the container where I was putting uh, all the workflows that I wanted to try and uh, had in mind and that I wanted to make available for everyone. So, yeah, I mean, at the beginning, it was super small. <laughs> so I'm going to provide a link to your Blender conference presentation because I think it sums up Tissue quite well. But for those in the audience that may not know about Tissue, can you summarize it in a few sentences? Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, Tissue... It's basically a collection of uh, tools that I use for uh, in my computational design workflow. I think the most famous one is the tessellation, that is a, a patterning tool that allows to create uh, uh, 3D patterns along surfaces. But in general, is where yeah, where I put the workflows that I think may have a general interest 
and I think may be useful for computational designers, architects, or people that are working with 3D printing in order to use Blender for fabricate or for designing or for making concepts ideas. And the main idea is I took, I was using Grasshopper before, which was, which is one of the main tools used in the computational design field. And uh, I say, okay, there are some workflows that are actually are used quite often and they are quite flexible and they are quite useful. So I say, why not just making them uh, some features that is like a point and click and you can use directly in a software like Blender. So my main idea is to make more accessible to use computational design workflows, even without the need of programming code, programming skills. Yeah, and I think you've done a fantastic job with that because it is exactly as you describe Thanks. it, as you advertise it, you know. So <laughs> as somebody that also uses Grasshopper quite a bit and understanding that some of the maths that you have done within your code, you would have to manually replicate in Grasshopper to have a similar effect. And that just takes time. Yeah. Yeah, also I thought, I mean, I mean, I, I didn't see a reason why you had to recreate that every time. I mean, yes, if you, if it's just you, okay, you can, you can create a workflow in Grasshopper, which is basically like a node interface similar to geometry nodes or Zverchuk. And um, you can just create your blocks of components and then reuse them for your workflow. But in general, I mean, everyone that is approaching the field of computational design is repeating and learning from scratch the same things. And it makes sense, it's a learning path. So you have to start from A, B, C in order to get to Z. Uh, but at the same time, if you just need to design something is, I mean, it's a waste of time. I mean, I think it is a waste of brain usage in, <laughs> in the world doing, repeating exactly the same thing every time. So I say, okay, if you just have to do that, you don't have to learn the software and learn all the details of the logic and the mathematics that is behind that, then maybe you don't need them. So there is no need to become a scientist to do just a very basic thing. So why not making more democratic and accessible? I mean, like Blender is, I think. Yeah, great. And where do, do you use tissue a lot? I do, yes. Uh, actually, it's, uh, I mean, I started developing it because I needed it. Mm. Uh, no, actually, the very first reason was the frustration of doing workshops about the grasshopper and see the struggle of the beginner users in doing very simple things. And again, this is totally okay because you are learning a software and you have to do ABC and that's fine. But at the same time, uh, not all of them were continuing this path. Some of them were maybe a bit, I don't know, uh, overwhelmed by the tool. And at some point they, I mean, we just stick to very basic things that we were able to code. So I say, okay, I did this workshop, it's cool, but the results were not that exciting. So maybe if the tool allows more space for creativity instead of dealing with math, maybe the output will be better. So I, I start using that at the beginning for teaching but then I start using also for my actual uh, job. So when I have a client, I have to design something or I'm collaborating with uh, some other professionals. Then what I do is use tissue to very quickly 
generate ideas because it's more modeling approach and you don't have to get lost in uh, logics components and math and uh, i use that for sketching ideas but also for fabrication because i think blender uh, is very good for fabrication despite some people says that it generates just open meshes and this is probably because you're not using it properly if you use it properly i think it's a great tool for fabrication as some amazing tools like a 3D printing toolbox uh, and allows you to analyze and uh, check what you're gonna produce. And uh, I, I use that a lot for 3D printed object actually. Mm. That's great. So fabrication, that's more of a small scale. What, what's the biggest thing you kind of have designed and fabricated with Blender and Tissue? Um... It's actually something that has not been communicated yet. Uh, it's no, there are actually some uh, sneak peek of that because it's a structure that I design. I, I designed together with other people, of course, in the University of Southern Denmark. And uh, it's a structure that has some uh, 3D printed formwork used for producing some uh, uh, components in, in uh, reinforced concrete. And uh, I think that's the biggest one so far. And uh, but. I cannot show the images at the moment, but I hope okay. they will be released soon. <laughs> Great. We look really looking forward to see them. I think you, yeah, you may have shown some of the intricate, yeah, yeah, yeah actually, uh, even connections, yes. how they kind of connect together. Yes. Uh, and actually, I mean, you know, they say, if you are a hammer, you see nails everywhere. Uh. So if they give me a problem, I try to use tissue to solve it. And uh, if I manage to. Uh, if I don't, I try to see if there is a feature that I can add to help me solving with tissue. If also this one is not possible, then I use something else. But if there is a tissue solution, usually I try to use that. So back to where you were saying that you switched over in your workshops, in teaching workshops with Grasshopper to teaching them with tissue. Did you notice an effect in the students' output? I still uh, use uh, Grasshopper for teaching sometime, mm -hmm. uh, but yes, I think there is a difference. And uh, I think the difference is uh, what was actually my motivation to start doing, using tissue. I think uh, the output, the outcome of the students, they are uh, nicer in less time. Of course, it, it's a different path because in one case you are learning the logic and the programming skills. In the other case, you are more learning, uh, designing and using a tool for achieving a specific set of uh, possible outcome. So it's a different learning path, but I think that it maximizes the, the quality of the outcome considering the limited time that sometimes you have during the workshops. I suppose in one case, you know, with Grasshopper, you spend most of the time just learning algorithmic design, right? And you focus yes. a lot less on the design, except the maths behind it, lists and comprehensions and so on. Whereas on the other, it's really a lot more about the modeling. So I, yes, I can imagine in a shorter form, intensive workshops, how you can get to a much better result much quicker. Yes, yes, definitely. Also sometime, um, when you do a computational design work, a workshop, you, you have to teach the tool, but also the logic behind the computational design and uh, general modeling, com complex modeling. And I think that with tissue, I, I can manage better to focus on designing and uh, the, the thinking that is behind the design 
of those type of geometries. Yes, so, so it's yeah. in a way computational design almost takes a, a back side of the overall process because it's just a way to get to a better design, isn't it? It's, it, sh it shouldn't be like the main driver in a way. Well, it could be for some people, but for us like mm -hmm. designers, and I feel like computational design is great if it gives me what I can get, what I needed from it. And if there's a quicker way to do that, then please, yes, I would definitely use it because as designers, we want to focus a lot more on design. Yeah, that's the point indeed. Yeah, and uh, that's exactly what I was telling my students in a recent workshop that I held as well, that might have some kind of computational or parametric background. And I was noticing it does take a while for people that are not used to Blender's interface to just get used to how things work around, but most of them were quite happy with the kinds of results you can get fairly quickly with it. You did mention a little bit about comparison with geometry nodes and Spherechalk. Do you use those tools as well? Um, I I used to use Spherechalk a bit more. Uh, indeed, I also develop a couple of components that I used uh, to design and 3D print some uh, uh, clay vases. And with Bruno De Masi, we were working on a series of vases, and I think we will continue the research now. And uh, I developed some components for Sverchok, and I think it's a very interesting tool. I think it was uh, was able to bring some of the logic behind that is in uh, Grasshopper to bring it inside Blender, in a bit different way because the tool is at the end is different, so you have to like rethink it a little bit. Uh, but I think they did a very nice job. Now there is also Geometry Node. I think we are not uh, complete. We are not competitors. I think we have two different logic and probably the target is a bit different, even though Geometry Node now is kind of getting a lot of attention. And uh, I'm pretty curious to see how people are starting using it. I'm not using it a lot at the moment. I'm still doing some experiment and maybe just using to solve some uh, small issues and to achieve some, uh, some feature in a very interactive way. But yeah, one of my... One of the things in my to-do list is actually to to go a bit deeper with that. I definitely recommend it. I've been using it more and more, and now it seems almost impossible for me to work on a project without using a few geometry node scripts here and there. And actually, yeah, no, that, that's quite cool. And, and yes, Sverchok is very similar to Grasshopper, but almost too similar, except better. I would even say it's better because it's more Pythonic, right? So you don't have any language confusion. So all the lists, they work in the exact same way when you script a node as when you would uh, comprehend any of the geometry. Of course, I don't use C-sharp, so I wouldn't know too much about the C-sharp yeah. side of Grasshopper, just Python. So maybe that's where there's a bit of confusion. But my problem with Furchalk has always been that it's great, for proper computational designers, but Blender has so many other ways to quickly model things, semi-non-destructively with modifiers, that I've barely had a use case where I need that level of computational design. How? How have you used Sverchok? Uh At the moment, I'm not using it a lot. Um just because I'm focusing on uh, on other things. But I had time to use it quite a bit. 
I, I saw some of the limitations that uh, Zvertrak has. Probably one of them is the fact that it's based completely in Python, on Python, while, for example, geometry nodes, it used uh, instead, uh, I mean, it's hard-coded in Blender, so the performances are a bit different. I didn't use Vertrek recently, so I'm not sure if now some of the limitation or the, those uh, performance issues, they have been solved. Um, but I think I think it's yeah it's quite similar to to Grasshopper and I think that's good because it allows also an easier migration from uh, from Grasshopper to to Blender. While when you use Geometry Node, the logic is quite different, and uh, I'm not saying it's worse or better, but uh, I think you just have to rewire a little bit your way of thinking. Exactly. It's indeed a bit different and it takes a bit of getting used to it. But then all of a sudden I'm not missing lists and grafts and flattens so much, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. In uh, Yeah, you, you, you probably don't get the possible errors that you can get easily with, uh, with lists and data trees. It's, uh, I don't know. I don't use Houdini. I imagine geometry nodes may be a little bit closer to Houdini than it is to Grasshopper. In its yeah, at the end, it has been developed mostly by people that is working on uh, visuals and animation. So I think it was more natural for them to look at Houdini. Uh, I also don't use that. I, I just use very briefly. Uh, but I guess it's, it's a bit closer to, to that. While, uh, I mean, I think uh, computational designers and architects are quite a niche in the in the area of blender so i think it was more natural for them to look in that direction rather than grasshopper yeah and so you've been teaching at multiple universities right before sd you've also been teaching in bologna and yeah what is is there an and it's at architecture universe architecture programs right or is it design programs or is uh, I mean I was uh, actually an assistant for Alessio Rioli, which was actually my uh, professor for my thesis and it was actually the one that introduced me to computational design and um, and yes it's it's uh, the course is uh, building architecture and engineering and uh, the specific course is a design studio. Right. So what is the adoption of students, architecture students, architecture and design students, speaking of Blender? Um, I think, uh, I think it's getting more adopted. I mean, when I started doing the first workshops around, I mean, it was really, I mean, I don't know if it was just me or very few people using Blender. Um, actually, there was also Andrea Graziano, which also is a co-founder of Codate together with uh, Alessio Rioli. He was actually the creator of uh, Blender for Computational Design uh, Facebook group. Uh, but yes, it was a very small community. I mean, it, maybe it wasn't even a community, I guess. Um, so I think now it's definitely better. I mean, while uh, before I was, I, I was feeling really like, the only one of one of the very few to use uh, Blender in uh, computational design and architecture. No, architecture in general, no, but computational design, probably. Uh, I think now there are more people that are using it, even though what I think is 
that for an architect, Blender cannot be the only software that you use because we know that in architecture, you need also other things. And, um, and Blender, I think, cannot substitute it completely at the moment. Um, so I think it's always like a secondary software, something else that you start learning in order to start doing some other things. Uh, but I mean, even though now it's more widely adopted, I think that in schools and universities, they have to cover first another part of knowledge that is more focusing on uh, softwares like uh, Autodesk softwares or uh, Rhino softwares. And, um, and after that, Blender becomes like a, a secondary tool that you start using to add something, some new possibilities to that. Hmm. I mean, many, many years ago, uh, when I was an architecture undergraduate student, we were taught a software called 4Z. I don't even know if you've heard of it or not, but it's just a yeah. general 3D modeling software. And then I remember us learning Rhino version 3. I think Grasshopper was wow. just <laughs> about to come out. Maybe it came out in my second or third year or so. And uh, we did not touch Autodesk software. I mean, people learned how to use AutoCAD on their own and Photoshop on their own, but there weren't specific classes for it. Mm. No, that's true. I mean, uh, I mean, seeing how things work on the backstage of university and the teaching, I, uh, I see what's the struggle also in uh, teaching all the software that you would like students to use in their projects. I mean, you have a limited amount of time. They, you have to teach them how to design, you have to teach them how to use the tools, and uh, it depends. In some schools, they really teach, try to teach everything. In other schools, they just say, okay, let's focus on the design, the tool is up to you. Uh, so there are different approaches, and uh, also now, I think, uh, not all the schools are really spending a lot of time in, um, in teaching the, the use of the tools. Um, but yeah, it's definitely getting better. I mean, especially when I was studying, yeah, I mean, of course there was, uh, AutoCAD and, uh, all the softwares that we know. Um, but also some of the teachers, the professors that we had, they weren't really using a lot with digital tools. So that was also, there was a bit of digital divide between the students and some of the teachers. Yeah. Right. So. At SDU, did you, was teaching software as important as teaching design? Yes, actually. I mean, the nice thing is that the teaching program that uh, Roberto Naboni, the professor there, uh, started preparing uh, is really focused on uh, the digital tools. So the idea was to start doing computational design in the design studios. And for that, we were working on building the knowledge before then. Uh, so everything is quite uh, focused on the digital aspect and the digital fabrication and robotics. Uh, so I think in that school, yes, this is what we were doing. So I was teaching uh, the basic of modeling, uh, working with uh, Rhino and doing some uh, something in Blender for visualization. And uh, then uh, we were doing also computational design fundamentals using uh, Grasshopper and teaching the, the logic of Grasshopper. Okay, so you had proper technical tutorials. Yeah, this is what we were trying to do. 
And so you, you might be one of the very few people that I know, there might be more, if you are out there, please let me know, but you might be one of the very few people that not only uses Blender for design, but also for fabrication. So, so what would you say to people that are kind of trying to do that? How, how do you find like it's tool set? Like what are the limitations, the advantages that you see? Is it just for like smaller scale or can you work also for larger scale development? Well, I think there is no limit uh, in the scale that you can, uh, that you can use. Of course, when you start going very big, probably you will need to have more, uh, to, uh, to put more attention on the structural aspect. So maybe you should integrate also with uh, other analysis tool. Uh, but beside that, I think that probably uh, with a more um, democratization of 3D printing, uh, I think Blender is became more important in uh, the fabrication process. Because before then, I mean, people was, was saying, yes, but meshes are not precise. You cannot use it for uh, preparing a mold, a mold for uh, uh, injection molding um serious or uh, i mean the fabrication method weren't relying that much on 3d printing while now in engineering you can 3d print in metal if you are like optimizing some structures you can uh, 3d print uh, at home because a lot of people now has a 3d printer at home and uh, the language that the, the file that you use for 3d printing is a mesh so now blender is finally talking the language of most of the fabrication method that are quite used uh, now, so I think this uh, kind of help a little bit uh, promoting Blender as a tool for fabrication. I remember that uh, I got inspired also back then by a project of Shigeto Maeda, Maeda which was working on uh, this uh, organism. They were like uh, uh, generated with some scripts that was that were uh, was automating like extrusion and rotation on faces and generating some random uh, creatures and he was 3d printing them 3d printing them for like an exhibition or producing uh, <clears throat> producing art pieces so i think also this type of uh, experiment were kind of inspiring me in using blender as a tool to produce things that are ready to be printed of course there are always some uh, uh, hidden challenges like intersecting faces or a lot of small issues. So actually some of the features that I'm adding and developing for tissue, they are sometimes really targeting the, the people that are working in uh, fabrication and 3D printing because I try to solve or simplify some, uh, some workflow, some annoying parts and uh, try to make them more uh, uh, user ready. Hmm. And does, is the process of 3D printing larger pieces within, I imagine what are industrial 3D printers, fairly similar to 3D printing with desktop printers? Mm, I would say no, because usually when you 3D print something very big, unless you use a, a printer that is literally like a, a scaled up version of a smaller one, uh, but what you want to do usually is to extrude with uh, bigger layers of materials. So what happens is the layer is a more, um, it becomes a, a more relevant feature in the final aesthetic and uh, final features of your design. So in this type of 3D printing, usually you focus 
more specifically on designing the 3D printing part rather than uh, just making an STL model that then you're just going to go and slice it. I see. Okay. So usually there are two different approaches. I'm thinking more like uh, uh, clay printing, uh, which is something that I have experimented uh, quite a bit, and also concrete 3D printing. So if you want to print with concrete, you will see that the layer is, is much more visible. So I think the design challenge changed a little bit. So that's also why in tissue, I start developing some contouring tools and also the G-code exporter that initially was a part of Zvertrok and now it's a, a, a standalone add-on. Not standalone because it still needs Blender, but is yeah. an independent add-on. Um, they are focusing indeed on, uh, on helping the workflow of 3D print, something that you just design as a toolpath instead of producing an actual STL that then you have to slice. Okay, so you can, with tissue, you can export your G-code, put it, you know, on a flash drive and plug it in directly to the printer without going through Cura or Slice or other slicer software. Yeah, with a G-code exporter. In tissue, though, there are some uh, slicing uh, tools for produ producing contour curves. Initially, it was actually part of tissue. Then I say, okay, maybe... It's getting a bit specific, this G-code thing. Okay. Maybe it doesn't make so sense. So that's a separate like add-on add Yeah, at some point you say, okay, let's keep it separate so you don't have to deal with the old tissue if you just are interested in exporting a G-code. And it's called G-code add-on? G-code exporter add-on. Okay. And so does it give you some level of control then for your tool pads and how you want to slice around? Or does it do some automatic automation? Uh, automation where you have, let's say, an external perimeter that's always continuous? The thing is, it's not a slicing tool. Mm -hmm. It's just, it take curves or uh, polylines and export them as G-code. That's it. I see. So that's maybe a misunderstanding actually from uh, with some users because we expect to have a slicing software. No, no, it's just an exporter. You just export. <laughs> so you, you draw your path as you want it and then you can export it. And then there are some ways to use like some embedded features in a blender, like the radius of the curve. You can use that to control the amount of material extruded. So you can control it and just sketch something and export it. And what are the advantages of using that? Is it that when you have a curve, like let's say and you draw, you manually draw your curve, that your 3D printer wouldn't print a part here, then move over there and then come back and print the second part, but it's more continuous? Yeah, basically you, you can control exactly how the path is going to work. So, and if you want to do something crazy that is uh, unsliceable, you, you can do that. You can just draw the path. And the way I use it, I use it initially with Zvertrok. So I was building a, a curve that was following some mathematical function like a continuous helix and then with manipulations of the points in order to get some patterns or deformation of a shape. Then uh, now I'm uh, testing the contouring options that are in uh, in Blender, in tissue, sorry. And uh, and now you can slice an object and uh, and control also with that, with some settings, the offset of some points in order to articulate some patterns. Um, or for example, I use some time with a tissue. So you can do a tessellation of a component, which is actually just uh, curves. 
So you can repeat these uh, pieces of curves along a shape, and then this can be the path that you're going to extrude. Well, I'm looking forward to see some more experimentations where you document that, because that sounds fantastic, right? Where you're tessellating your print path to print. Yeah. <laughs> Super cool. I can, I'm almost imagining, and I think you've done experiments like that with drippy 3D printing, right? Where you kind of print, let's say in vase mode and you go around and then sometimes you go beyond the edge and then it, exactly, it has yes. the materials, physical properties, let it droop a little bit and create a very interesting pattern. Yeah. Yeah. I did some experiment with uh, Bruno De Maas indeed. The cool thing of working with him is that he's a, a computational designer, but he's also a ceramist. So he knows all the logic and is actually also quite excited about Blender in general. So he, he likes and loves that part as I do, but he's also an expert of the material. So mm. he knows what you can do with the material. So it's that, that, that part is actually quite cool because he can also process the object. He, can, he knows how to glaze them, what you can do, what are the limitations and he's building printers that are bigger and bigger. And so we, we are going to have fun. <laughs> At what scale? Can you go up to the scale of a small pavilion or not quite yet? <laughs> uh, we, we were thinking of something like that. Um, this is an idea that we have. Uh, of course, you have to print in parts, but these building printers that are able to produce quite some big pieces that you can use at architectural scale. And that's what... Not, not an entire pavilion, but maybe parts that you can assemble. That's assuming with concrete? Um, I mean, it's similar, but also different. I mean, yeah, I think maybe with concrete is easier to go higher with a scale. With clay, if you want to bake it, then it should be something that you can put in a, in a home at some point. Okay, right. While with concrete, you print it and then uh, if you can lift it, that's okay. Or maybe you just print it there and that's it. So it's a, it's, it's a bit different. Also, I mean, yeah, you can make bricks that you can use uh, in architecture. But yes, I think just they are, they imply different things. You have to think differently at what you're doing. Very interesting. And yeah, we're looking forward to see if you do any of those experiments. I hope to be able to show soon something new. I mean, we did already some, but yeah, we would like to scale it up a little bit. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the other, maybe lesser known features in tissue, like reaction diffusion. What was the reason yeah. of including that and how do you use it? And... Okay. I included reaction diffusion because I love reaction diffusion. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, no, actually the, the very first project that I did, which was my thesis project was with reaction diffusion. And uh, initially it was, I mean, what I found exciting about that and equivalent strategies was the uh, emergent nature of what you were producing. So the idea of not having something that is biased by what is the, the design gesture that you do, but is more expressing itself according to some parameters and reacting to some fields. Fields also is something that now we are more familiar with thanks to uh, to geometry node, I guess. But so the reason is the ability to have a kind of 
a system that is more uh, biological, that is more able, capable to react and adapt to conditions. So that's what I, I like of reaction diffusion. Why, for example, if you work with tessellation, I mean, you can uh, predict what is going to happen. I mean, if you have some experience, you, you are not that surprised by the possible outcome. There is no such level of uh, interpretation by the, uh, uh, an emergent system. Right there, you just program a very small rule, and then is the interaction between all the vertices or the pixels of an image that are generating a more complex pattern, something that you cannot really uh, predict completely since the beginning. And uh, <clears throat> what I like of reaction diffusion is his ability to adapt. And uh, now recently, I also added the feature to allow it to, to follow some specific directions and a vector field. So you can control what the direction of reaction diffusion and uh, it has this property of alternating two different substances, which are called uh, in, in a tissue A and B. And what happens is that you can uh, control the balance between them and the type of topology that you get out of this uh, pattern. <clears throat> so for example, in uh, SDU, we recently used it for the summer school that we did with the students. And we used the reaction diffusion to generate structural patterns that were generated according to some uh, structural analysis from Grasshopper. So basically what, what I like of that is um, that, yes, you can really control a complex pattern just working with uh, input fields and uh, controlling the, the parameters of that. So now not only is tissue containing tool sets that would typically require users to use Grasshopper, but now you don't even need to use processing for your yeah, emergent actually. and generative design. You can just do it in tissue. Yeah, indeed. Actually, I I did the very first version in in processing during my thesis project. Um, I mean, the thing is, of course, you are limited by what I I decided to put in the reaction diffusion in Blender. While if you do it yourself in processing, I mean, the limit is your your imagination and your coding skills. Uh, so w when I try to code something new in tissue, I always try to make it as generic as possible, not something that I only would use, but something that allows more interpretation by the users. Um, now, for example, the limit is that it's working on surfaces and I recently added a feature to use it also on uh, images and textures. But, for example, it would be nice in future to develop something that is working uh, three-dimensionally as, as a volume. Uh, I've seen also some experiment in geometry nodes. Uh, so I, I would like to understand uh, how much makes sense to continue develop things inside tissue or how much is more convenient to instead move them to, to geometry nodes. I think the simulation nodes now are quite interesting and they seems like a natural uh, way to use such such features. While before then, I, I struggled a lot coding something that was usable as a simulation uh, system just working with Python, probably because of the sk my skills of Python. I mean, I started learning literally Python because of Blender, because I wanted to do something in Blender with coding, and I, that's why I started learning Python. So probably there are some parts of the code of the tissue that are really horrible from a programming point of view, but they work. <laughs>
But yes, especially with reaction diffusion, I was struggling a lot to optimize, to make it working. All, all a lot of issues that are not there now that the geometry nodes allows uh, such flexibility with uh, simulation. So I'm trying to understand what is a good point to stop tissue and start instead working a more collaborative way with geometry nodes. I think you are already able to script geometry nodes. So if you want to use it in your code, you can create a geometry nodes tree in the background and do some simulation, get that mesh and then output it with whatever else tissue is doing. That's one example yeah. where you can combine what the work mm -hmm. you have done and some of geometry nodes, as opposed to the other way around where you try to replicate a lot of the uh, features that you have in tissue in geometry nodes. Of course, that would be super nice, right? That would be amazing <laughs> to have uh, all the, the, the very expansive feature set that you, that you have developed in tissue right inside of geometry nodes and combine it with some of the features, but that's already a, a possibility with generating base meshes or components with the help of geometry nodes and then being mm -hmm. able to put to tessellate on top of those. I, I don't know how yeah, well totally. it works with um, reaction diffusion though, but I imagine should be the same as long as UVs are not involved, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, what other features are there that are hidden that maybe people don't know much about in tissue? So we talked about tessellations, reaction diffusion, you briefly mentioned contour lines, so maybe you can talk a little bit more about that feature. Uh, yes, I mean, uh, what I try to to bring inside tissue is the non-destructive natures of some of the features. So, I mean, the tessellation, I think, is a clear example. You take an object, you multiply on top of another object, but then uh, you, you make some changes in the input geometries, and then you can refresh it and you can uh, reiterate your design, improving it step by step. So this non-destructive uh, feature is something that I, I'm trying now to bring in uh, more tools that are in, uh, in tissue. One example is indeed the contouring. So before you were able to make some contour lines based on a weight map of a vertex group, and you were generating that, and that was it. Then if you wanted to change something, you had to delete it and create again. So now I'm trying to make as much as possible the tool inside tissue working in a non-destructive way, something that you can refresh and reload, updating the, the changes to the input geometries. And then I decide, okay, maybe since I'm using a lot the contouring for printing, maybe I can just make a, a, an horizontal slicing along one axis, and then maybe I can control the direction of that. So that's something that I implemented in the contouring. Maybe you can uh, do something that use the topological distance. So maybe you start from an open part and uh, then you start slicing along the surface using some uh, constant offset along the surface. So I'm trying to make this tool as generic as possible, adding all the pos different possibility possibilities of contouring. And, uh, and that's one thing. Um, also, I mean, you can use the contouring strategy also as a way to trim the geometry. So for example, if you have a weight map, you can decide to trim it 
along a specific ISO value of the vertex group. So let's say you want to trim away everything that has a weight that is higher than 0.5, and it will do that. And while if you use a mask modifier in Blender, it will just remove some vertices, the contouring will cut the geometry along that value and then will remove the part giving you a smoother uh, boundary. Also, there is uh, the contour displace. The contour displace allows you to do like a displacement. So you can imagine when you want to do like a very sharp displacement. And what happens is that you see all the faces, uh, the topologies basically like revealing itself when you use a displace with a very sharp map. And the contouring instead is cutting again the geometry along a specific value of the vertex groups and then is displacing them. So you have like a, a very sharp step, but it's defined along a smoother uh, boundary. Um, other things are related also with uh, vertex groups because I think vertex groups are a very cool feature that allows basically to have uh, adaptability in, uh, according to some input maps in, uh, inside Blender. So a lot of the features that I was adding were actually based on, uh, on that. And for example, you can get uh, um, a weight map of uh, a deformation of your geometry. So it takes as input the original shape of the geometry and then the deformation that you have done manually with some modifiers, with some cloth simulation. And then you can de define a weight map that then you can use to inform something else, modifiers or other tessellation or something. And uh, yes, and with that, I mean, I think I covered some of them during the presentation of the Blender conference back then. But yeah, the possibility to have like the area as vertex group and uh, <clears throat> yeah, and other features. I think that some of them maybe may become more obsolete because of the possibilities of a geometry node. <clears throat> I think that some of them, for example, one that I developed was the weight formula. So the possibility to write an expression and generate a vertex group according to that. And it's something that I think now you can do with geometry nodes. Maybe not with a string of text that define the expression that you want, not yet probably, but at the end it's something that you can definitely build with your component. So I also thinking that maybe I can clean a little bit the add-on and remove some of the noise of some features that are not that necessary anymore. I have to understand if they still have some uh, applications or they are just obsolete. Hmm. Right, so the contouring tool sounds like something that would be very... The output is always curves, is that right? Yes, uh, so far is uh, curves, poly, polylines or nerves. And then there are some features to also inform them with uh, a variable radius. Maybe you have a, a vertex group that want to control the, the dimension, the thickness of your curves, and you can do that. It sounds like a very useful and handy feature for architectural design for facades because meshes usually, the topology of the mesh does not directly relate to the way that you would create, for example, a facade, right? The facade has to be related yeah. to more, let's say, horizontal, perfectly horizontal planes or vertical planes. So I definitely have to take a look at that and see how it can be used. So. I was just thinking about 
some kind of application when I was doing a concept architecture tower, uh, which has, of course, some curves, and then applying tessellation with it for the facade glazing. But I only applied it in the vertical because the verticals of the, the, the topology of the mesh were more or less vertical. But the horizontals, you know, when you have some interesting shape, the topology does not relate to how you would actually slice it and create yeah. panels. So very interested to yeah. explore that feature yeah. further. Yeah, please uh, try test it and give me your feedback. I think you are, uh, I mean, <clears throat> you are really helping me a lot because I mean, you are uh, uh, communicating me what are the bugs <laughs> of things that are not working so I can spot better what, what needs to be fixed. But I also like a lot how you are testing everything with an architect mindset. So I also, I mean, I studied architecture and building engineer. Now I'm working on a more generic uh, applications about computational design. And I really love that you are very focused on uh, the architectural application. And this, I think this gives me some useful input in understanding how to improve or fix or what develop more uh, with, with that in mind. I think you're definitely helping me a lot more because without your tool, I wouldn't be able to do any of that. <laughs> I mean, it's a collaboration. <laughs> yes. But, so if people want to get into understanding how to use tissue for architecture and design, where would they look for references? For At example? your tutorials. <laughs> tutorials. No, I think they are a very good source. Um, I... I didn't have time to work a lot on documenting properly everything. So I think that now if in tissue there is 100, uh, only uh, 40 is documented probably, mm. maybe less. Um, so I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to build uh, the manual that is uh, online on the Blender website. Um, but yes, I, I definitely need to make more, uh, more videos about that. Um, so now, I mean, I have some, some people that are actually helping me a lot, supporting me on Patreon and there I'm sharing, uh, uh more things. Okay. Uh, not because I want tissue to be exclusive, but just because, uh, it allows me to produce more quick contents and to have a more, uh, conversation with them. Uh, but that actually helped me a lot, uh, developing a tissue because it gave me like a reason to say, okay, I have to maintain it. It should be stable. I want to add features. I want to show something new. Uh, so it, it was quite important for, uh, for the development of, uh, of tissue. Um, but regarding your question, uh, I, I think so at the moment, probably there are very old tutorials about old version of tissues. So I think your videos are really one of the best sources that you can find at the time. Mine are maybe very specific to more architectural design. Uh, and some of your, even your older videos, I think they're still very relevant because they show, let's say a more advanced use at the smaller scale of how to use tessellations. For example, I remember one of yours, uh, uh, um, examples from the blender conference was showing how you're nesting on only specific so you had a level one tessellation and then you had level mm -hmm. two tessellation that was only happening on specific faces of the level one tessellation which gave a really interesting result and much less uniform 
and let's say what is produced at a larger architectural scale. And I found I found that process absolutely fascinating. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's actually, yeah, that's the type of content that I should really update and uh, and and stress more. Uh, but yes, that was actually. I think I found it interesting because that gave me the idea of developing the iteration parameter that allows you to easily repeat tessellations one after the other. And uh, yeah, I think I didn't exp I didn't stress it uh, as much as I should do. I mean, I think there are quite some possible outcomes that are kind of fractal-like uh, using the tessellation in such way, and uh, probably I will. Uh, Actually, you gave me an idea for uh, making a, a new video and <laughs> and show more uh, more features similar to that. Great, yeah. And another thing that I never learned how to use in tissue is local coordinates versus global coordinates and what that means. There is one user, yes. by the way, that uh, uh, I saw her presentation at uh, a. PA CD Next event, which I also participated from. She's from MIT doing experiments with 3D printing. And I think she also had some um, courses on design morphine where she was really looking at very advanced ways of creating tessellations with some of the tool sets that I'm not that familiar with. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's actually that local uh, global coordinate. It's most of the time the solution to the problem, but also another source of problems. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the thing is that once you get it, that's very simple. Mm. But I, I'm realizing how abstract it, it will sound, especially because, I mean, if you know really well how Blender is um, managing the coordinate of the vertices and those things, that's just something that you already know. So you have to use local coordinate. Okay. Ah, okay. No problem. But I mean, if you are using a, if you're maybe are more a beginner or maybe you haven't have a, a chance to actually go that deep into such features, it sounds maybe a bit confusing. So I definitely have to find a way to make this more clear and intuitive. I was thinking maybe just to visualize like with some colors, you just turn on and you see with colors, what is the boundary that you're actually using at the moment with a component. I think that would make already much simpler to understand it. Definitely. So then, uh, just from a technical side of things, be careful because I know that Blender is deprecating OpenGL. So a lot of like the add-ons that use OpenGL with viewport overlays, they have to change their code now. Okay, so I, I will wait a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Or maybe I will trigger the generation of some components in geometry nodes to visualize that so that maybe. it could be more stable. Even though the geometry node is still a bit uh, not that stable uh, ground because, uh, I mean, of course, they are still developing a lot. They are improving it, and that's great. But sometimes if you are a developer and you prepare everything and then they change something at the very beginning and nothing works anymore. I mean, yeah, sometimes it's a bit frustrating also with tissue. Sometimes some features stops working because there are some updates in the API of Blender. And again, I'm, I'm not complaining about that. I think it's great to, uh, to improve it and uh, to continue the, the, the development. 
it's just uh, just a bit of frustration. <laughs> I, I totally feel you as a course creator. I feel the same. I made some courses and some <laughs> video tutorials, which are completely outdated now in a system that doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah. So if I change everything in tissue or your courses, you will have to redo that. <laughs> then I have to start from scratch again. <laughs> okay, I'll be careful then. <laughs> no, I. as long as you have a tessellate button, the rest of it is fine. Okay. You can change everything. Just okay. don't change the tessellate button. Okay, okay. We keep. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So I've just got to look at my notes if there was anything else that I wanted to to talk. Um, so what do you think maybe a way to promote Blender's possibilities to more professionals and to design and architecture students? Um, I think there are already some some good things happening. I mean, uh, compared to when I started using Blender, now it's it's a proper tool that you can use for production, I guess. So Blender is already doing a lot of work, uh, making a very good the Blender Foundation, generating a very good product and uh, communicating it very well. Um, I think what is needed is uh, mostly uh, inspiration. I think the tool is there, is capable. But yes, it's the promotion that uh, probably should be improved. And I think, again, that the work that you're doing is really relevant because it's inspiring as it is showing what you can do. I was doing that as well, doing my tutorials and uh, developing tissue. But I think that, I mean, really showing what people can do is very important because maybe if you are a little bit into the topic, into the fields, maybe you just need to see that there is such a feature and then you say, okay, I can do that, 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 that. But you can do that type of connection. Maybe someone that is still approaching and is a bit skeptical needs to see what you can actually do. You want to really see that and say, okay, now I understand it. So I think it's really important that there are some very good quality content videos and the showcases of things that can be produced using Blender. And I hope that when I will be able to uh, communicate better the project that I work on, on uh, in SDU, maybe that also will give some more inspirations on how to use it for uh, digital publication as well, together with computational design. So that part is important. And for that, the fact that there is a the Facebook group, Blender for Computational Design, I think is really helpful because I see that there are now, I mean, it's a very large community now. I think we are like uh, 20,000. 25, I think. Even. 20 something, yeah. And uh, I think it's really good. I, I see that a lot of people are not really users. They're just watching. They say, mm, let's see what you can do with Blender. <laughs> but it's good. I mean, they are interested. So that's that's a very good thing. And that's a, a very nice playground to to share and, uh, and communicate what you can do. Um, but uh, something else that is needed sometimes is some development. So what I'm trying to do with tissue is to to make to make it a tool that you can use in some workflows. And I think uh, some other developers can help as well developing different features. And there are some developers that are making something really nice. So that's another important part. And uh, also the documentation. So the thing is. Um, if you start using an open source software that does not really um, develop that much or use that much in a specific field, 
you will struggle finding tutorials, finding documentation, people helping you solving some specific issues. So I think the documentation part should be very, uh, very rich and should be able to cover most of the common issues. So it should be easy to start doing some, some things because you can find easily the solution of what are your problems. And uh, about that, as I mentioned several times, I should really <laughs> work a bit more on making a proper documentation for tissue because uh, now, I mean, I'm mostly I'm helping fixing the problems or showing what are the solutions to most of the problems, but that's not sustainable and also is not uh, the smoother way to, to start learning and add-on. So it should really be a documentation that you check it, you understand everything, you can follow some steps and uh, you learn it. And this is for tissue or in general for um, workflows that are um, useful for architectural design, for example. I would, as, as I, we've talked before about this, but if I would be happy to also plug in and help with the documentation if there's a need and maybe some other advanced tissue users could be able to help. No, totally. I mean, about that, uh, there is the documentation page that is uh, the official one on the, um, on the Blender website. And uh, everyone is free to contribute and uh, help with that. Um, or maybe it can be an actual active uh, interaction with the repository of the documentation, or can be also a way to give feedbacks and say, listen, I think in the documentation you didn't cover that part, or maybe how you explain that is not really clear. Mm. Or maybe uh, I found out an example that may be very good to explain these features. Maybe you can uh, consider using that in the documentation. I mean, also these type of feedbacks are 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 very are very good and i think the nice the nice thing of uh, open source in general when i started using the software and then now that i start developing some of them uh, is that i mean there is a, a very straight communication between uh, direct communication between the user and the developers and i, I like the conversation that uh, is, is working between those two entities so i really like to receive feedbacks from users uh, because they help me understanding uh, how my product, my add-on, can actually be easier to use for most of the users. And so how would, uh, if, if somebody has a question on tissue, where is the best place to ask that question? Uh, there are several places according to what are your preferences. I mean, as we mentioned, there is the Facebook group Blender for Computational Design. This is generic for computational design, but I'm one of the moderators uh, together with you and Andrea Graziano. And uh, that's a good place to ask questions also because there are a lot of users. And uh, maybe if I'm not able to give you an answer, maybe someone else will do. Uh, I created a Discord channel for tissue. And you can find the link also in uh, my YouTube videos. Now I add the link in all of them. So you can join the Discord and ask questions there. Uh, you can use uh, GitHub. I mean, especially if it's a bug, maybe that's the best place because everything is tracked uh, there. So you can uh, write something there. But also if it's a generic issue, maybe it's not a bug. Maybe it's just something that you don't know how to do. Okay. Or there is a, a Blender Artist Forum. So someone, uh, not me, created this uh, back then on Blender Artist, 
and uh, you can ask questions there. And I think you you may find already a lot of solution or examples, but uh, that's that's a channel that I keep an eye on usually. And then, if people want to see creations with uh, with tissue, are there like specific tags on Instagram or Twitter that um, used? I yeah, I I use mostly yeah, I use a lot of Instagram. And I use Instagram more for the, um, let's say the, the final outcome that I want to show that use tissue. And there, uh, I use like the hashtag, uh, uh, blender tissue. Um, usually, yeah, usually it's blender tissue. Um, I use also Twitter where I usually share more progress about the code. So usually the more geeky part are not on Instagram, they are on Twitter and now a little bit on Mastodon as well. And, um, but yes, I think the hashtag is uh, Blender Tissue and also on Blender for computational design, there are some, uh, some nice work that also some users are producing. Great. Look at my notes here. So outside of tissue, you know, in the Blender world, Maybe it is mm -hmm. tissue and blender, but maybe not. So what are you most excited about within architecture and technology at the moment? Well, I mean, about blender, geometry node, I think is, uh, is one of the most interesting thing at the moment. And I'm really looking forward to see, uh, how it can be applied to, to architecture and computational design in general. I think that, I mean, that's a very obvious answer, but I think that AI is a very interesting thing happening now. Um, and, uh, I mean, I think there are two ways to, to adopt and use AIs. I mean, I'm not saying that as an AI expert, I'm just really giving my very simple and basic thoughts about that. But one way is the mid journey way. So a lot of people now is, uh, became an AI artist producing uh, amazing images using uh, AI like Midjourney or uh, Dolly. And um, I think that's interesting because somehow it helps pushing what is the creativity and um, it helps people visualizing ideas that you can actually produce then with uh, 3D modeling software like Blender and maybe Tissue. So that's, I think it's, it's a very good tool to, to help people to visualize something that maybe is not easy to, to visualize otherwise. So I, I think it's giving a very, uh, nice contribution to the creative process. Um, the other way that I'm also interested in is to use AI to, uh, make more efficient and easy to use some, uh, uh, some, some specific features. So for example, I don't know, like AI for a uh, retopology of uh, geometries, or maybe AI to figure out uh, some problems that are not that easy to predict. I don't know. I'm just thinking like imagine tissue, you have AI to orient automatically the components, the way they are supposed to be oriented. Oh, uh, that would be heaven. <laughs> <laughs> so very, uh, how to improve small, small part of the workflow. Maybe you don't see something amazing, like amazing, like a mid journey image, but it's making your life easier and maybe will enable you to do something else because you don't have to deal with the mess of dealing with uh, the orientation, exactly how you want it to happen, for example. Hmm. Yeah. I'm really excited about AI myself as well. 
and also in a slightly different way than the mid-journey way. And I, ha I have mixed thoughts about that because it's a double-edged sword in a way, right? There's a lot of beautiful yeah. content, but it also adds a lot more noise, which is just that visual noise that you have to kind of filter through to find the more relevant information because now it's just so much easier to produce visual content. Yeah. But what it's a bit frustrating for uh, for artists, I guess, that are not using AI because maybe you struggle a lot to do something and then someone else writes some sentences and makes something that is cooler than yours and say, oh no, <laughs> what's my meaning in this world right. now? <laughs> so I think it's it's quite uh, it's quite disruptive. Uh, I I think is is changing a little bit the balance in uh, in the creative world. And uh, I'm curious to see actually how exactly it's gonna be is gonna settle at some point. Well, I see like a, a huge potential for AI again within architecture and design is the fact that at the moment you know you can generate these really beautiful concepts. But what if we can use the same with like starting as an actual concept, let's say even a massing on a specific site or specific spatial proportions? of a tower bashing or interior space or even on an urban scale and use that, let's say, base massing to, to look at variations of the design. So probably a bit more specific than what we have at the moment, but I think that's probably what a few months away at this point. Get to that. <laughs> yeah, <level>. maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe. I mean, another thing also about uh, AI that is quite exciting is ChatGPT and the possibility to to write code for Blender. Yes. I mean, that's actually quite helpful because maybe the code that he's writing is not the best. I mean, I tried to do some some tests, just very quick tests, to be honest, uh, but maybe it, it wasn't producing the most efficient code, but it was doing the job. But I mean, when I was learning at the beginning uh, how to code in Blender, I mean, I, I wanted to do A, B, C, D, I have to study A, okay, how I, how I do A, okay, how I do B, okay. And then you have to learn and fig, figure out how to do all the small bricks that you need in your code and then put it together. Now you can write it, you can figure out what is the main structure already and then just working on fixing the things. So, I mean, if you are starting learning uh, Python for Blender, I think, I mean, it's a very useful thing. And... I don't know if all the code that it produces is perfect. I didn't test it again that much, but I think it's definitely quite helpful. Yeah, that's a really good point. I guess if you start code, learning how to code today, it's definitely a huge asset to have something to just spit out what you want, check it out, test it, and then improve it or even just use it as a reference. Yeah, I mean... Instead of finding someone on some forum that found the solution that probably exists to your problem, but you have to look for it, you have to find it, you have to hope that is exactly fixing the problem that you have or is exactly uh, working for you. Um, I mean, now you just write it. I mean, I think we will get even more lazy now, but <laughs> I think it's. <laughs> I think it helps. I mean, if it saves time that you can uh, spend doing other things, why not? Definitely. I and I also imagine that you know OpenAI, the guys behind ChatGPT, had kind of crawled to all the various user forums to find 
to help them influence probably some of those solutions that ChatGPT is proposing. I don't know how the coding yeah, works, to be honest. In there. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And uh, actually, I read that you can also use to document your code. Maybe I should do that oh. for the documentation. <laughs> Why not? If it saves time, right? Yeah. <laughs> Great. And do you have any upcoming events or courses that you would like to mention or any other workshops? Um, I have a, I am organizing a workshop now. I mean, they are organizing and inviting me for a workshop in Qatar at the moment. And I, I think I will, uh, I will communicate something more official uh, as soon as we have uh, uh, the documentation material, the communication material. And um, I'm also working on organizing uh, other workshops, but nothing, uh, uh, nothing sure yet. So I, I think I will, uh, I will uh, post something on on the social once I have the, the news about that. And uh, I, I hope I will be able to participate to the next Blender conference. So I think it would be a nice way to showcase some so showcase some of the project that I worked on recently, and maybe some updates on on tissue. What is new compared to the edition of four years ago? You said right. It will be by the time this year's okay. Blender conference comes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I I would like to participate. I, I'm not saying that I'm going to participate, but because I mean, I'm not selecting myself for the conference, yeah. but <laughs> no, that, uh, that would be nice. I think to participate. And where's the best place to follow you? Instagram, you said, right? De depends, depends what is your, um, what you're looking for. If you're looking more for, uh, tutorials, I think, uh, I mean, I, I would say Blender for computational design and YouTube, but I. I wasn't that uh, active recently because I was quite busy with university. And now I have um, the goal to start producing more content because now I'm working again as freelance and I can organize better my time according to, to this. Uh, if you want to really, the, the most of my teaching uh, contents, probably they are on Patreon. And also on, I'm there, I'm doing some tutorials or just explaining some features or just sharing what are the news in the code. Uh, if you are interested in what I'm using it for, I think Instagram is a good, uh, is a good place. I am your patron on Patreon. And I do have to say <laughs> that uh, your videos there are very useful to show they're very specific and mostly about new features, right, or improvements. And they definitely kind of uh, show me tissue t tissue settings capabilities that maybe I wasn't aware of before. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. I, I would really want to make more public YouTube videos. Uh, I don't want to be tissue to be like an exclusive tool and you have to follow me or otherwise you don't know how to use it. No, that's not the goal. It was just practical for me to do in that way uh, while I was busy with uh, other other jobs duty. Uh, but again, now I, I think I will try to, to cover a little bit the, the gap that I left in uh, on YouTube and other public social. Well, I, all your YouTube content is still highly relevant. And in fact, I tend to reference it quite often, some of your old videos. So for anybody that's new to Tissue, I would definitely recommend to check out Alessandro's channel even now. And Thanks. maybe by the time this video comes out, there'll be 20 new videos. No pressure. 
yeah and great so really nice to have you thank you so much for your time alessandro always a pleasure to chat to you i am also thinking of applying and going and just showing an update of how i've used blender over the last four years since the last time we met it in amsterdam for the blender conference so maybe we'll see each other there yeah yeah i hope so really <laughs> but thank you for inviting me again and again uh, compliments for your work and thank you for uh, uh, documenting uh, tissue and showing the, the community all those workflows. And thank you for being so receptive of all my <laughs> critiques and late night messages, you know, <laughs> oh, this is not working. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, Dimitar. <laughs> okay, I'll fix it. <laughs> no, no, actually, they are really useful. I mean, really, I mean, you are like a, a, a second pair of eyes on uh, on those things, so that's quite helpful for me. Yeah, maybe now with like a new batch of of students coming out, with like that they have a bit of familiarity with tissue, maybe they can find more books, or even some of them hopefully start to contribute to the code. Yeah, I I think uh, I, I it's not happening a lot. Uh, just they had very very small contributions, but. And I know why, because probably the code is very complex to to handle. It's a bit over, overwhelming if you are coming from another brain that is not mine. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think it is a bit, I mean, it's not the best code. It's uh, maybe, maybe could, could have been done better. I don't know. Maybe that's in, a bit intimidating for maybe for a new person that is approaching the code. But yes, everyone is welcome. Totally. Yeah, I've looked at it, you know especially with some of the mirror rotation issues that we have discussed recently. I was like, yes, maybe I can fix it. I look at the code and then I'm like, not in this lifetime, maybe the next lifetime. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be honest, some things are, uh, they seems unnecessarily complex, but the reason is always because of the performance issues that are kind of intrinsic in, in Python sometimes. So I have to find a way that is not the most intuitive one, but is the one that at the end saves some milliseconds of uh, of time during the tessellation, or sometimes some seconds, quite some seconds. And so I, that, that... I do have to commend you though, because tissue for a Python piece of code, it still performs pretty well when you tessellate, you know, a subdiv level four mesh with some panels that each, you know, panel is fairly complicated on its own. And then I add subdiv on top of the tessellation. So it does perform fairly well for what it produces. Thanks. Yeah, I, I, I spent some time just optimizing and rewriting and say, okay, now I have to rewrite the whole thing. Okay, let's start. Okay, now I, I, I learn uh, NumPy. Okay, and then I write everything in NumPy. Okay, oh, now I know Numba. Okay, even better. Now I write everything in Numba. Mm. So yeah, I spent some time doing that. Yeah, it but shows because it is getting better over the years for sure. Cool. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Alessandro. Thank you, Dimitar. 